good morning. We welcome you back to another episode of the Gray Matters podcast. I'm Jen Mascott, co-director of the Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. And today we are so fortunate to have with us Mr. Steve Lahutsky, one of the founding partners of Lahutsky Keller, whose partner Scott Keller had the first oral argument in the Supreme Court of the new year, 2022, this past Friday in the very well-known now OSHA Vax or test case. And so we're looking forward to hearing from him this morning. I will start off with just a brief introduction. And then uh, Steve Lahutsky is going to tell us a little bit about um, his firm, this case, his clients, their challenge. And we'll talk a little bit about the justices' arguments on Friday. Steve was in the courtroom there, masked and ready to go to support Scott Keller. Steve is actually the counsel of record in this case, so we can hear a little bit about what it's like to brief and argue and prepare for in a case that comes up before the court in an emergency posture like this. But look, Steve has a great uh, amount of experience. He, before starting his firm, directed the litigation strategy of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the world's leading business federation, where he worked for eight years from 2013 to 2021, most recently as litigate chief litigation counsel. Um, prior to that, at various points, he worked as an attorney at Wilmer Hale. He was an attorney advisor back in the day in the Office of Legal Counsel, one of my favorite spots from the Department of Justice, although we did not unfortunately overlap there. And he is a former Scalia clerk and um, happily for George Mason Law School, since we love Chief Judge, uh, former Chief Judge Douglas Ginsburg, uh, Steve was also a Ginsburg clerk. Um, so we're very fortunate to have him. Um, Steve, thanks so much for your time and joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me. So to set the stage a little bit, and right now we're recording this Monday morning, we expect uh, Monday morning, January 10th, we expect it to air later today. What we don't know is when or if the Supreme Court will issue a ruling um, in this matter. And so can you tell us just a little bit about the challenge that your uh, client here, the NFIB, has brought and uh, what decision you're waiting on right now from the Supreme Court? So we're waiting for a decision on our request for a stay of the effective date, um, essentially the effectiveness of um, OSHA's emergency temporary standard from November 5th, 2021, which is the requirement either to um, test and mask or vaccinate if you're a private sector employer with more than 100 employees. And so that um, that standard uh goes into effect as of today, January 10th, Monday, January 10th. That, that's a delay. Um, we had a, It was originally supposed to go into effect um, basically by December. Uh, we won a stay in the Fifth Circuit, which was then lifted in the Sixth Circuit. OSHA, uh, on its own volition, extended some of these deadlines um, so that January 10th is now the deadline for companies to essentially roll out their plans and tell their employees whether they need to be vaccinated or whether if they're unvaccinated, they need to wear a mask and then test once a week. Um, February 9th is the deadline for any employees of a company um, where they're going to require vaccination to be fully vaccinated. So essentially two shots in the arm, I guess, by December, uh, sorry, by February 9th. 
Okay. And you mentioned one of the alternatives possibly that OSHA is permitting companies to utilize is this testing alternative. But we um, have currently a testing shortage in this country. And so, um, and you also said, I think this applies to businesses with more than 100 people. So can you just give us a bit of a sense based on the work that you did in preparing the briefs about what kind of impact this is going to have? Is this half of the workplaces around the country? Is this a certain sizable set of business sectors? Does it apply in every industry? What kind of impact is it likely to have on the ground? It is um, essentially every industry, every type of business with more than 100 employees across the entire country. So it applies to more than 260,000 different businesses, I believe 1.8 million different um, offices, establishments, workplace settings, and 84 million employees, which is two-thirds of the um, country's private sector uh, employees, either have to get vaccinated or have to test um, weekly and and then also you know wear a mask um, at all times when they're in the workplace. So very significant impact and the stakes are very high. Um, when you uh, were working on representing your uh, trying to lay out your client's interest for purposes of arguing for a stay, what are some of the um, hardships or challenges that businesses are planning to face um, as they try to implement this? And then are there certain penalties that they face if they don't impose a policy quickly enough? So the the penalties for noncompliance are up to $13,000 per day per violation. Um, So pretty steep um, penalty for OSHA to enforce. But the immediate costs are are sort of twofold. And in our briefing, we, we noted that Businesses are kind of between a, a you know, Scylla and Charybdis, a rock and a hard place. You know, pick your your favorite metaphor, um, because either they have to incur the cost of testing weekly for those employees who do not want to become vaccinated, and you know there are millions of individuals and employees who will make that choice, um, and and OSHA recognized that, and that is a substantial cost that. Um, businesses would have to bear. And as you noted, there just aren't enough tests. Um, There aren't enough tests available. They're incredibly expensive. Um, The supply chain difficulties means that, you know, often they're not available in the time and places where they might be needed. Um, So that's not a great solution for businesses. Um, You know, the other solution is, you know, perhaps even worse, but it's, you know, to require vaccination. Um, But the record um, is pretty clear, and again, even OSHA admits this, that there will be individuals who quit, who change jobs, who don't want to vaccinate, um, and they would rather go work someplace else or not work at all um, because for whatever reasons, they feel so strongly about it. Um, and frankly, that happens with testing too. I mean, there are people who don't want to be tested every week and who don't want to wear a mask. Um, and so the the other significant harm that employers face is just a significant workforce transformation. There's already um, a worker shortage in this country. There's already tremendous labor movement with people, you know, quitting and and changing jobs, I guess, known as the great resignation um, in the stories that you read and in the sort of DC um, Politico and Axios and places like that. Um, And so there's already that significant transformation. And then if you then pile on the people who will quit, change jobs because of this, um, extraordinary requirement from OSHA, 
it's, you know, it's even more disruptive at a time when companies are already having a really difficult um, time staying open, keeping their operations moving as normal, dealing with all of these supply chain challenges. So it's sort of piling on a regulatory burden at the worst possible time you could have it. Okay, so I hear all that and I understand, you know, why businesses would be particularly um, opposed to the OSHA policy. That said, you know, OSHA is a workplace regulator, um, has been in existence uh, for decades. In fact, I think the law it's operating under here was enacted in 1970 and presumably, you know, frequently puts in place workplace standards. So one of the things I think some of the justices are trying to explore on Friday is, you know, what's the problem here. I mean, we have an unprecedented, at least, you know, in the last hundred years pandemic. How is this particular policy different in a way that you all are requesting emergency relief from any of the other standards that we might think OSHA believes it's empowered to put in a place on a much more regular basis? Well, I think Scott said it best at, at oral argument on Friday. You know, it's it's um, it's economy wide. It's every industry. It's not remotely tailored um, in the way that previous emergency temporary standards from OSHA have been, um, and it's not, you know, really geared towards solving the problem as OSHA had identified it. I think the dissenting opinions uh, from the Sixth Circuit, both from Chief Judge Sutton and from Judge Larson, um, noted that. OSHA didn't apply the correct interpretation of of, um, the statutory requirement here, which is that um, this standard, the standard that OSHA created, has to be necessary to address the the grave danger. Um, And necessary means indispensable. Um, It means that in plain text, it means it from context. It means it from overall sort of you know, structure um, from constitutional structure, not just from statutory structure. And OSHA applied that sort of the wrong definition in coming up with its um, conclusion that vaccination is effective um, to solve the problem. And I I think there's no question from my clients that the vaccines are effective, that they're life-saving and that, you know, that everybody, you know, should um, get vaccinated. They've done um, incredible things to try to distribute millions, tens of millions, even um, doses of the vaccine to their own employees, to the public at large. And so there's not really a fight at at that level um, about whether it's an effective approach, but as to whether it satisfies the statutory criteria that govern OSHA, that's where um, we think there's a problem. Yeah, so that's great. And so I definitely want to explore that more, the statutory standard. And my personal preference or interest would have been in hearing even more discussion and questions from the justices in general on Friday about the brass tacks of the statutory term and how this fits under it. It seemed to me just as an outside observer that there was an awful lot of questions about, you know, policy and generally what's the best um, approach. And I took your uh, firm's briefs to not necessarily be about whether businesses should require vaccination, whether individuals should require vaccination. In fact, I think you say that you all are supportive of vaccination, but the question really is whether this particular policy in the way in which OSHA put it into place is authorized by the statute that Congress enacted in 1970. And I, the other thing that they, I didn't actually think the um, questions focused on, but I'll highlight it here because of my 
you know, day job as an administrative law professor and we're the Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I mean, a lot of my colleagues in the administrative law space, we like to think a lot about procedure and the Administrative Procedure Act. And indeed, many of my colleagues like to think about the procedural requirements of the Administrative Procedure Act as sort of an accountability safeguard, almost as though they put into place an alternative set of separation of powers protections, where if you can't quite reach the level of the constitutional separation of powers with administrative agencies, you can have a backup plan because agencies themselves have some kind of democratic accountability by having notice and comment periods and giving the public an opportunity under the Administrative Procedure Act to be involved if there is a new substantive requirement. And indeed, nobody at all is arguing this is anything but a very um, intense, um, significant substantive requirement that OSHA has put into place. Um, And the APA not only has notice and comment requirements, but then it has its own set of exceptions. If there's good cause, if there's an emergency, if there's a foreign affairs issues, agencies can be exempt and they can operate more nimbly. And in this case, what's interesting is that Congress took OSHA out from underneath any of those requirements, not the initial notice and comment where the public has an opportunity to respond and the agency has to get advice from somebody other than itself, Um, not having to satisfy good cause, but there is sort of this backdoor in OSHA's much more specific statutory uh, procedural set of mechanisms, which Congress, of course, can put in place. Congress required the APA. It can exempt agencies from it. And indeed here, it has given OSHA a backdoor where it can act outside of any of those requirements. But as you say, it has to make certain showings. It has to uh, be a policy that's necessary because of exposure to grave danger. So I do think that most of our discussion here should focus on those standards. Before we get there, though, um, perhaps in, in in the event that we have law students on or former clerks or people who are just trying to figure out how one goes about getting the case before the Supreme Court and representing the kind of clients that you've had a chance to represent. As a practical matter, how long has your firm, which is fairly new, uh, been involved in this particular case? Did you Have you been representing the NFIB here from the first second they brought the challenge? How did you manage to get this before the Supreme Court on an expedited basis? Um, and how routine is it for the Supreme Court to hear oral arguments on in a stay posture as opposed to on the merits of a policy itself? Well, maybe I'll start with that last part of the question first. Uh, as far as we're aware, it's the first time in more than 50 years that the Supreme Court, as a full court, has held oral argument on um, a, a request for emergency relief, uh, you know, a stay in this context, but it hasn't happened, I believe, since 1970. I think the the year, as you noted, that um, the Occupational Safety and Health Act um, was passed into law. So it's rare. I think that probably also, um, you know, explains the extraordinary argument on Friday. Uh, You know, it was it was a more than two hour argument, two hours and 10 minutes, um, I believe. And I thought there was a lot of great questioning about the statutory issues, about the constitutional administrative law backdrop for all of this. Um, Of course, there were questions about um, the equities and policy interests, as I think there always are at all Supreme Court arguments. So 
it didn't strike me, you know, frankly, as an unusual um, argument, other than it was pretty long. Uh, it, you know, went went for a long time. Um, but I thought all of the advocates um, you know, did a, a, a great job. Um, I suppose I'm biased in saying that because one of them was my co-founder, Scott Keller. And we started our firm on February 1 of 2021. So we're coming up on our first anniversary pretty soon. Um, we have been counseled to this coalition of business groups, and it did grow over time. We, we started first with a petition um, on behalf of I believe it was 11 different business associations that was filed in the Fifth Circuit. Then we added another 15 um, associations in the Sixth Circuit. So we represent a, a coalition of 26 different business groups that run the gamut from, um, you know, sort of covering almost every industry sector, um, especially you know, some of the different ones that we had identified in our, our briefing. Anybody involved along the supply chain, whether that's um, you know, wholesaling and warehousing and logistics to, you know, retail and, and trucking and other forms of distribution. But then there are also a lot of just general business groups like the National Federation of Independent Business are, you know, the, the lead, the first name um, on the caption, um, you know, represents businesses in, in every sector, so long as they're small businesses. That's great. And, um, and so, I mean, how was what was the briefing schedule like? I mean, just as a strategic sense, I mean, was this all hands on deck? Everybody in the firm working to get the filings together because you were on a pretty tight uh, turnaround time in terms of making your arguments, right? Uh, we we were. Uh, it wasn't quite all hands on deck. Um, you know, we 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 have um, twelve lawyers um, on our team, and we've got a lot of other cases going. We've got. Um, litigation in the Fifth Circuit. We've got cases from California to Delaware and then um, from Texas up to New York. So there, there are a lot of different cases. Um, certainly the team that was working on this case, which in, included Katie Yarger, our partner in Denver, and Josh Morrow, who's a counsel um, uh, down in Austin, Texas, and then um, Shane O'Connor, who's our associate down in Austin, it was a lot of work over a lot of holidays, both Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's. Um, it was certainly expedited briefing for everybody. And I, I know that that's true for the folks on the other side, too, who were working pretty hard um, and for the you know judges and justices and their clerks. Because remind me, when did the Supreme Court announce the oral argument date? Uh, December 22nd. So uh, Wednesday. December 22nd. So uh, if my math is right, that's 16 days before our oral argument over the Christmas and New Year's break. That's that's right. A lot faster than they ordinarily have. (laughs) And how many days before the oral argument was your final filing due? Our reply brief was due on uh, a week ago today, Monday, January 3rd um, at 10 a.m. Okay, so you turned in your final filing at 10 a.m. on Monday, oral argument on Friday, and the arguments were in the courtroom. Was the courtroom, I mean, what kind of a feel did it have? You spent a lot of time in that courtroom, at least back in the day, as a law clerk, and your partner, Scott, was the Solicitor General of Texas, so he's argued a fair amount, right? How many? Do we know how many arguments he's had in the court over the course of his career? So uh, th- this was his 12th argument. So he's, oh, he's good. even dozen now. Okay, a dozen. <laughs> um, so you both have been court. there. 
what was the, tell us those of us who have been there ourselves and love the courtroom, maybe some even as, as members of the public, how is it different this time? What was the feel? What's the pandemic court like? Um, it, it certainly was very different. You know, the, the biggest change uh, for the advocates is that the tables where counsel would sit and the podium used to be very close to the justices, um, you know, right right there in front of the bench, um, which is a slightly curved bench, just a little bit. Um, but if you're up there as an advocate, it can be a little hard to see the wings if you're you know, <laughs> looking straight ahead and speaking to the chief justice to have a question from Justice Kavanaugh or from Justice Barrett it can be a little hard to see. Um, they've now moved those all the way back. So it used to be that members of the bar of the Supreme Court could sit in the courtroom in um, special seating, and they've gotten rid of all that seating. They've moved the tables and the podium way back, which as an advocate maybe makes it easier to be able to see and hear the entire bench. Um, but it, it's very different um, being in that courtroom with, with the structure of it. And the law clerks who usually sit um, to the side of the um, court um, and then the press who sit on the other side of the court, um, they're now in, in sort of the public seating in the, uh, the gallery area and just spread out. Um, so there are a lot of different uh, COVID protocols that are being put into place to keep everybody spread apart. So it's, it's, it's very different, um, I would say, just when you look around at, at, at what's happening. But then again, the argument itself was not really any different. Um, you know, justices asking hard questions and lawyers trying to do their best to give good answers. And were there a lot of reporters in the courtroom? I honestly don't know. I assume so. <laughs> you weren't focused on that. You were focused on the task at hand, which actually, well, I mean, here's another just question. I assume, and maybe this is partly because your firm, you're saying your attorneys actually are, are spread out because you have offices in many places. But I mean, normally when an advocate is in the courtroom, how many of members of the team would be there. And this time, was it just you and Scott? Did you have other, did you have associates or other partners there with you? Uh, there, there was nobody else. I mean, no, nobody else was allowed into the building. Um, you know, ordinarily, especially when you have a case like this, where you have multiple parties that are arguing um, in a, a single um, oral argument setting, you only have two lawyers per um, client or per sort of client group. Um, so, you know, we also had the state of Ohio that was on our side um, on behalf of, I believe, 27 different states. And so, um, you know, there are two lawyers yeah. for the state of Ohio um, who, who would have been in the courtroom, you know, but for some of the COVID protocols. Yeah, so that, well, and, and, and then the other interesting thing here is um, there was another case, related case, just after yours. And so I assume those attorneys were sort of in another spot, um, not in the courtroom while your matter was going on, because that would have made things a little well, bit they, they were off on, um, so there's the main table for the counsel who are arguing, and then there's another table on each side for counsel who are arguing the next case. 
Um, so they were there at the table for council who are arguing the next. Oh, case. okay. So, so that proceeded like general. it normally would outside of the pandemic. Okay, I got it. I didn't know if maybe they were in a totally another location just to minimize the crowding in the courtroom. Okay. Um, well, and and actually, so my question and this about Ohio, there were a number of states who have an interest in. Um, also getting a stay of this mandate. Can you, and are, do you feel comfortable talking a little bit about why the states are also opposed? And then if there are many who are opposed, how did it come to be that Ohio played the lead role here? Well, I think Ohio was the lead state um, because Ohio was the lead state within the states that were filing within the Sixth Circuit. Um, so there were different petitioner groups um, of states that were filed in, I believe, the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, and 11th circuits. Um, And so there were different states in each of those regional circuits that led coalitions of states. Um, Ohio was the lead state in the 6th circuit. And since the cases were all consolidated in the 6th circuit, Ohio was the lead state on behalf of all 27 states that were involved. Um, and I, I think, again, you know, Ben said it best at oral argument as to why the states were interested. But I, I think it's because of their sovereign interest um, in you know, regulating uh, public health within their own states that, you know, that that's the reason why they were there. OK, and. Um... Right, because federal law, obviously federal standards, once it's in place, would would in this case preempt what the states might want to do. So if they had a different idea or they wanted to perhaps have less burdensome or just alternative systems in place, presumably they 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 can't bring themselves out from underneath uh, their businesses out from underneath the OSHA mandate um, either. So let's get down to the statutory text. So um, for those who want to look it up and follow along. Um, 29 U.S.C. 655 C says, and this is so this is the basically the temporary authority that OSHA would have been working under emergency temporary standard. And so OSHA is not allowed to have an indefinite policy under this provision, but it does give it a fair amount of maneuvering room because it doesn't have to go through notice and comments. And so the secretary shall provide for an emergency temporary standard to take immediate effect upon publication in the Federal Register, if he determines that employees are exposed to grave danger from exposure to substances or agents determined to be toxic or physically harmful or from new hazards, and they have to determine that such emergency standards necessary to protect employees from such danger. So we have to have exposure to grave danger from some kind of toxic or physically harmful substance. I guess here, right, that's COVID-19. Everybody seems agreed on that that that's the substance we're trying to protect against. And then you've got to demonstrate the OSHA needs would need to presumably explain in the standard that the emergency standard is necessary to protect employees. So why don't we start off first? What was OSHA's claim that it has authority here? Well, OSHA's claim that it has authority here was that it satisfied all of the statutory requirements for an ETS that there was um, a grave danger to employees um, and that it was necessary to adopt a standard to protect them from that grave danger. So I, I think there were a variety of arguments that were raised in the 13 different applications to the court for a stay. Um, you know, there were some 
applicant groups who challenged whether there was a grave danger. Um, there were some who challenged, you know, whether it did anything to protect. Um, I think most of the arguments focused on the term necessary, and, and that's, you know, where most of the arguments were. Okay. Um, so on that point, you said OSHA, so an OSHA would need to say, I guess, not only that some kind of standard is necessary, but that the particular one that they put into place was necessary, right? That, so the, that's right. I mean, the statute says such standard um, is necessary. So it's, you know, that the standard that OSHA chose, not not just any old standard, but that, you know, the particular, um, the, the specifics of the standard that OSHA chose um, is necessary to address the grave danger. And in your briefing, were you focused most on addressing the necessary requirements on grave danger, on exposure, or did you just take more of a holistic sense to sort of demonstrate um, the burden that the that your clients felt they they are going to face from the standard? We we focused on the term necessary. We did not contest in the briefing that. COVID presents a grave danger um, to employees, you know, and we and we didn't argue things like you know whether COVID was an agent. Um, there were others who did and still do um, make those arguments, but but we didn't contest any of that for the purposes of seeking our stay application. And if you win, if you were to win this case, what would happen? And then would OSHA be able to take any action in response? So the the stay that we're seeking is under the Administrative Procedure Act that you had referenced earlier, um, 5 U.S.C. Section 705, and that provision authorizes a stay of the effective date of agency action pending the conclusion of judicial review. Um, so presumably after, if there is a stay that's granted uh, by the Supreme Court, then the case can proceed in the Sixth Circuit on merits briefing and argument and a decision. Um, and you know, maybe that would go forward. Um, but as your your sort of second part of your question asks, um, you know, OSHA could also just say, well, we're going to go back to the drawing board and we're going to do something that is narrower, more targeted, um, you know, industry specific or or focused on um particular workers and, and workplace place risks. Um, I think in our briefing and in the oral argument, we identified you know, different ways in which um, OSHA might be able to do something, but just not this. Um, and and I mean, in the re- in the relief that you're requesting, I mean, I take it that generally, I mean, the business groups would hope to see this be stayed indefinitely until there is more of a consideration of the merits. I mean, is there any room in the request for there to be a temporary stay? I mean, I think there was a, some point where the questioning on Friday was about um, how soon would the, would the groups want the stay? Would a temporary stay um work? I mean, what, you know, would there be a situation where the court perhaps issues an order and just stays the effective date for another week? Would that do anything beneficial for your clients? Um, yes, I, I think if there were an administrative stay that was issued um, to give the court more time to finalize its opinions, um, you know, that that would help my clients. Um, uh, and you know, it's it's something that we had asked for in our initial application, um, and 
Justice Alito brought it up during oral argument. And so there was a colloquy about it between Justice Alito and um, the Solicitor General, uh, Elizabeth Prelogger. Um, and, and so that that's a possibility. So I don't want to take too much more of your time, which is valuable. And you all have had, obviously, a very busy week. And we're very grateful to have you here at the, at the uh, on the Gray Matters podcast. But before we go, I also wanted to hit on another theme that came up with a lot of the justices. And it was a question and argument about who decides questions like this? I mean, are are your are the business associations, or are you necessarily here to win? Do you have to demonstrate that the federal government just doesn't have the power to address COVID or to ever issue anything like a vaccine mandate? I mean, or is there another claim really that's that's at play about who decides questions like these? No, I, I don't think we need to win that point. I, I, I don't think our argument depends on the federal government not having authority to do anything to address COVID. In fact, that's not our position. Um, I think all we need to win to obtain a stay is just to show that we're likely correct that OSHA doesn't have the authority to take this particular action that it has taken. Um, not that OSHA couldn't do something um, if it was you know, properly tailored, not that the federal government um, couldn't do something. Um, of course, as Scott um, and Ben Flowers, the Ohio Solicitor General, both said um, on, on Friday, you know, there are also lots of things that states could do, uh, states and cities and businesses um, you know, all have the power to impose their own requirements, uh, vaccine requirements or testing requirements. Um, and we certainly don't contest any of that. And I suppose at the federal level, right, OSHA wouldn't necessarily be the principal actor we'd be thinking about for policies anyway. So it could be the states, it could be the businesses themselves that decide how to handle COVID safety in the workplace. I mean, at the federal level, if OSHA doesn't have authority under this provision, what actor, in your view, uh, would be best positioned to address uh, COVID? Well, you know, there are lots of other um, agencies that have taken action, HHS, um, you know, various um, agencies and divisions within HHS, have taken um, different actions um, throughout the course of the pandemic. Um, you know, Congress, as we noted, as we noted at oral argument, Congress has acted. And I think OSHA also said that um, Congress has appropriated money to OSHA for enforcement of OSHA guidance and um, you know, standards like the general duty clause um, and other um you know, existing, like pre-existing standards issued by OSHA um, for high-risk workplaces, you know, COVID workplaces that are, you know, clearly at heightened risk. And Congress had identified some of those by statute. Um, And so, again, as I said, like, there may, there very well may be things that OSHA can do, is doing right now that are perfectly lawful. It's just that this ETS uh, is not one of them. 
Yeah. And as you mentioned, I mean, Congress, I mean, a, a lot of us in Washington like to sometimes complain things are too politicized and Congress isn't acting. But, I, you know, actually, as, as somebody myself in the, in the government um, until about a year ago, you know, we saw Congress actually take quite a number of actions in response to the pandemic, whether it be appropriating money or resources or new programs or just new policies. And so this indeed was a situation where with the pandemic, Congress actually did take quite has taken quite a few steps. Um, and certainly uh, would be, it, it seems like uh, from my standpoint with what I study, separation of powers in the Constitution, much better positioned and indeed a much more constitutionally appropriate um, entity to, to act to try to figure out um, what kind of solutions the executive branch should be empowered to put into place, uh, if any. Um, other, And so, as you point out, unless there's already a statute in place that empowers an agency to take action, it really you know, would be up to Congress at the, at the, at the federal level. Um, and then f- one final question. I mean, so even if OSHA were to satisfy the standard um, under this particular emergency temporary standard authority, which you're saying they're far from, they're far from satisfying, but can OSHA just, um, you know, issue sort of a quick policy and be fine? Or, I mean, under current administrative law doctrines, might there also be ways in which OSHA, even if it acted and had authority, would do so in a procedurally um, insufficient or inadequate manner? Like, are there procedural problems here with what they did as well and their explanation or justification of the policy? Well, I, I think there are a lot of arguments um, that, you know, some of them, as I said, have been made in other applications, um, others that might come out in merits briefing in the Sixth Circuit, you know, arguments about whether OSHA satisfied procedural requirements, whether it had substantial evidence for certain of its findings, um, you know, whatever the outcome of this stay briefing, um, if there is, you know, a future litigation in this case back in the Sixth Circuit. And as I said, I, you know, if a stay is granted, maybe there isn't anything else that happens in the Sixth Circuit. If it's denied, you know, maybe we all, you know, go back and, and there's more litigation in the Sixth Circuit on some of these issues. Um, but I think there are a variety of different administrative law arguments that would come up in that latter category where, you know, I, I'm trying to remember just how many different petitioners there are who have challenged this ETS, you know, it's dozens of petitioners. And I'm sure among those dozens of petitioners, they have a variety of different arguments that they might like to assert against this standard, not just the statutory arguments that we've relied upon. Yeah. And actually, as an ad law professor, one big unit that we have during the semester is all of the different um, avenues of judicial review. And so, right, even if a, even if an agency has legal authority to do something, as you say, it's got to have you know, factual grounding for it. it has to sort of make, you know, makes sense. I mean, it's a somewhat, can be a somewhat deferential standard, but what, what often is not as deferential is then when you get to the reasonableness of the policy and did the agency look at whether it was sufficiently narrowly tailored, whether it was adequately reasoned. Um, and so courts often over the years have applied a number of those strategies to review and get behind um, different, different standards. So it can be indeed quite difficult, even under normal cir- circumstances for an agency to satisfy all those standards uh, when it adds 
tax. And then the challenging thing, a uh, doctrine, is that uh, the agency can only rely on explanations that it had in place at the time it acted and not come up with a new justification, you know, a week later or three weeks later or six months later in court. Well, Steve Lahutsky, thanks so much for taking time to be with us today. And congratulations on almost coming up on your firm's one-year anniversary and already making quite a splash in the uh, legal world here with this case and a lot of the other projects that you have going on. So maybe someday in the future, you'll come back and join us to talk about more of those. Good luck and have a wonderful rest of your Monday. Thank you so much.